We are going to be reading this morning from Ephesians 6 and also Colossians chapter 3. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then Colossians 3, 20 and 21. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us about you. It tells us about how we can come to know you. But it also deals with our our most personal relationships. We thank you, Father, for your wisdom and your love to us in giving us your your word. We pray for Tom that you would help him as he preaches and ministers the word to us. And we pray, Father, that our hearts would be open to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Over the last uh, few times that we've been together in the book of Ephesians, we've been looking at a section that I call making the handoff. And the the idea behind that, that little subtitle is that God has commissioned us as his ambassadors to to put the hands of others into the hand of Christ. Not not by forcing their hand, but by by showing them Christ, and, and more specifically by showing them the love of Christ that He has shown to us. The key command for this entire half of the book of Ephesians, as I see it, is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now some say that the essential command in the second half is walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's true. I agree with that. But the command that tells us how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling is this one. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The Apostle Paul moves from that command into many other subordinate instructions, but that's what this is all about. It's about loving as we have been loved by Christ. The way that we, uh, the way we walk in a manner worthy of our calling is we go back to our calling, which is whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. The outrageous wealth that belongs to us because God has brought us into union with His Son. And on the basis of that calling, we then, we then walk in a manner that reflects it. We walk as outrageously wealthy servants of God and servants of one another. We are called to imitate this same self-denying, sacrificial love by which God purchased our redemption, the love of Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 21, Paul presented the exhortation at the end of a string of exhortations, and he said, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
as we've seen, that then becomes the, that becomes the, the launch point for all of these instructions in the rest of chapter 5 and in chapter 6 through verse 9 to three different pairs that, that apply in three different pairs of relationships. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. This morning we'll be looking at the second of those relationships and how all of this applies. Paul begins chapter 6 with a very straightforward command in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now we've seen in the when we were looking at this section on marriage, the critical importance of recognizing that headship and obedience work in one direction, not two directions. It does not work out when a wife will not follow the lead of her husband, but instead wants to lead in in the marriage. It does not work when the husband abrogates his place as head under Christ and and gives that position to his wife. In fact, all kinds of wreckage occurs. And if you want a great example of that, there is no more glaring example of that than what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, If you go back, by the way, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, after cursing the serpent, after cursing the woman, God turns his attention to Adam and he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you can, you can interpret that to mean because you followed the lead of your wife. It's not just that he heard her words. It's that he, he followed her lead and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because you denied my word and you abrogated your responsibility as head in your marriage. Both of those sins were were apparent there. Now, so uh, it matters a lot that we do this the way God the, the way God tells us to do it. The same kind of uh, inflexible principle abides in the relationship between children and parents. If children determine that they are going to lead in their family and they are going to override the will of their parents, a a train wreck results. And it's contained as long as the father and the mother don't go along with that. But when they do, and that does happen, then the wreckage is, is just off the charts. We cannot lead where God call us, calls us to follow and we cannot follow where God calls us to lead. But, as we've been uh, seeing in these last few weeks, there is also a sense in which that, that exhortation to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ always applies in, on both sides of a relationship because we are all called to subordinate our pursuit and protection of our own well-being to the well-being of another person. We're supposed to hand our well-being over to God and forget about it and then be available to God, be at His disposal as instruments for His provision of well-being for others. That's what Christ did, and that's what we're called to do. The priority in all of this is pleasing 
our Savior and our Master. In the instructions to children in Ephesians 6, God says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In a parallel statement in Colossians 3.20, a parallel command, Paul says, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to God. See, we who have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us desire to please Him. We want to do the things that please Him. And so Paul appeals to that motivation. He says, he says, obey your parents because it's pleasing to God. And a child who knows and loves Jesus will, will see great value in that command. It doesn't mean that they'll do it easily or readily, but they will understand the reason for it. Now, our kids, uh, our kids and youth are in their Sunday schools at this hour. And so one of the things that I, I thought a lot about this week is how do we take these commands to children and apply them to this group that is mostly beyond the, the place of being in someone else's household as a child. Uh, the first, of course, the, the, I think the most obvious application is that we are all children of God. And so everything that, that this command to, to obey in all things, to delight God, it, that applies to all of us. The first command, however, in, when it comes to our households, the first command, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, that command actually has a, an end point for us, right? In, Genesis 2.14, after God created the woman from Adam's rib, and Adam was very pleased at what he saw, God said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The leaving part is prerequisite to the cleaving part. And the leaving part is not essentially geographical. In fact, there are many cases in, in, in the ancient Near East in which families lived in the same household after they were married. But the leaving part is about, it's about the headship of your earthly father ending over your household and now you become the head of your household under the headship of God. And once again, when we violate God's command, things go very, uh, very haywire. They get off the rails really quickly. There are far too many men and husbands, and that includes in the body of Christ, who don't take that leaving part seriously. And what, what happens all too often, many of you have seen cases like this, is that the father and husband in the new household still is handing a good part of the authority and headship over to the old household. And 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 where this really gets crazy is that most of the time he's handing it to his mother. And And when that happens, you always have a train wreck. 
So, husbands, fathers, love your parents always. But make sure that you don't interfere with the headship of their household and make very sure that they don't interfere with the headship in your household. You are the head under God, and that's God's hierarchy. God, you, your wife, your children. We have to do this God's way when we don't. Things uh, things get really messy. There's a second command here after the command to obey your parents. And uh, you see it right up there in chap- Ephesians 6, verse 2. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. Now, where does that come from? The Ten Commandments. That's the fifth commandment. So at this point, Paul's going all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, and he's saying that command is still in effect. And he says, honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. Now, what was the promise back in Exodus? Well, it was it was that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Paul tweaks that some, which, by the way, he can do because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he he adds another element. He says the promise that God gives when you honor your father and mother is that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. He's talking to an essentially Gentile audience in Asia Minor. They don't care much about the land of Palestine. But... They do care about living for a while. And he says that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that if you obey your parents, you'll live until age 95. What it does mean is that God is actually making you a promise that He will bless you in the temporal and earthly realm if you obey your parents. And that blessing may take many different forms. The 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 most one of the forms that people looked for the most was a long life but the promise is the promise of earthly blessing and so it's it's a very commendable thing and actually it's a it's a very advantageous thing for a, a child to honor his parents now um this command does not end when you start a new household In Mark chapter 7, verses 9 to 13, Jesus, it's also in Matthew, but Mark, uh, Jesus sternly, harshly rebuked the Pharisees because when their parents were in financial need, these very religious men would say, oh, whatever God has put into my hands is entirely given over to him. And Jesus knew what they meant is that whatever God had put into their hands was entirely given over to them. And so he, where did he go? He he went to this command. He said, Mark 7, he said, uh, neglecting the commandment of God, verse 8, you hold to the tradition of men. You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of a father or mother, let him be put to death. Wow. One thing that that verse tells us is that honoring your parents, well, a couple of things to see here. First of all, he's talking to Pharisees. 
He's talking to men who have their own households, not to children. And honoring your parents goes way beyond helping them out financially. He says, he who speaks evil of a father or mother, let him be put to death. That's from Leviticus 20. I think this is a big deal for us as Christians, especially as older Christians. I think what we see in our modern culture is an institutionalized parent cursing. Here's, Here's what I mean. We are told by our culture that the only way that we can move forward in our lives, in fact, we are told very often by Christians that the only way we can move forward in our Christian life and our spiritual life is if we go back to all the terrible wrongs that were done to us by our sinful parents and we smoke out those wrongs and we dissect those wrongs and we beat them to a bloody pulp until we finally are free of them and then we can move on. And so we end up with this great justification for trash-talking our parents, for acting as if they are greater sinners than we will ever be. But guys, let me tell you, if this is the way it works, your kids are going to have plenty to talk about when, when you're out of the picture. Let me just ask a simple question. Who can point me to a passage in the Bible that says that you're well-being in Jesus Christ, your progress and the grace of Jesus Christ depends on you dredging up every wrong that's been done to you in the past. Where's where's the verse? It's not there, guys. It's not there. There's a reason it's not there because moving forward in Christ is about putting behind the wreckage behind you, the wreckage behind you. It's about pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and never looking back. And that is renewed every single day. And the only concern that you ever need to have over the wrongs that have been done to you in the past by other people, especially the people that that most impacted you and that were most entwined with your life, is that you must forgive them as Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32 Honoring your parents, guys, means that you stop trash-talking your parents and you say things that hold them up. And if you want a really, really great example, go back to 2 Samuel chapter 1 and look at King David's eulogy to King Saul. Saul was not his dad, but it's still a marvelous example. Because Saul had spent, oh, about 15 years pursuing David all over the countryside with his army trying to kill David. And when Saul finally died in his battle against the Philistines, Saul and his son Jonathan, go look at David's eulogy and tell me if you can find one single negative or slanderous thing that David says about Saul. It's not there. He lifts him up as a valiant king, a valiant warrior. He's the anointed of God. It's always what he considered Saul. It's a great example. This matters. All right, in chapter 6, verse 4, Paul turns his attention from from children to parents. And uh, you'll immediately notice he doesn't mention mothers. 
He's talking to fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And again, if you'll notice here, he starts with the negative. Do not provoke your children to anger. And he gets that out of the way before he says the positive. And if you go to the parallel passage in Colossians 3, there is no positive command. There's just fathers, (laughs) don't exasperate your children, causing them to lose heart. You think maybe Paul knew something about us dads that we're not so eager to admit? This really scorched me this week. And I think maybe it needs to scorch some of the rest of us. The first thing I want to want to consider is why Paul uh, addresses fathers here and not mothers. It is clearly not because mothers have no role in the raising of children. There's a great passage in uh, in Second Timothy. Uh, let's see here. Second Timothy one, and Paul is talking about Timothy's faith. And he says that, he says that Timothy's faith, really, it was the product of God working through two women, his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And there's no mention of his dad. And if you go to Acts 16, you find, uh, Luke is, is introducing Timothy and he says, Timothy had a mom who was a believing Jew. And the only thing that he says about Timothy's dad is that he was a Greek. So, Timothy, this protege of Paul, who was very instrumental in the in the building up of the church, this church at Ephesus, Timothy owed the fact that he was raised up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to his mom and his grandmother. See, God will always use the instruments that he has made available. But that doesn't mean that God's perfect design is for children to be raised by parents who don't have a believing father. That's the, the ideal situation is when the father is, is of faith. And uh, we're, we'll talk a little bit at the end about, uh, about single-parent families. But the command here is to fathers, and that's because in God's design, when there is a father and a mother in the household, the father is the one with the accountability for raising his children in the knowledge of Christ squarely on his shoulders. And the mother is accountable to the husband. The father is accountable to God. And that's how God structured this this particular relationship of headship and submission. And there are too many dads (laughs) who hand off the, the very grueling task of child rearing to their wives and they kind of don't look back. And that's not God's intention. It doesn't mean that you, that dads, fathers don't delegate anything to their, to their wives. It's certainly not what it means. But it does mean that God's holding you, dad, He's holding you accountable for the, for the raising up of your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's talk a minute about how we exasperate our children. Paul doesn't give us examples. He doesn't give us scenarios. He just says, he says, don't provoke your children to anger. And then in Colossians, don't exasperate your children. I think that the reason that he doesn't go into scenarios is again, because this is principle driven. And the principle is what we talked about right at the beginning. 
It is that we are called as dads to love our children the way Christ has loved us. We are called to raise our kids the way God raises us. And and so the way we exasperate our children is when we don't do it that way. We're called to deny our own pleasure, our own vindication, our own reputation, our control over our own well-being in order to love our children as Christ has loved us. And when, when instead what we do, <laughs> when instead of that what we do is we make our relationship with our children all about our honor, our needs, our reputation, our schedule, our ambitions, our money, our privacy, whatever else of ours that we, that we love more than Christ, you can be assured that, you, that we will be exasperating our children. We will be putting them in a very, very bad place. I don't think there's any dads here that want to provoke their children to anger, that want to leave their children ready to quit. But guys, since we are all prone to do all of the above, how are we ever going to get this right? The answer in all of this is that we must have an absolute, utter, prayerful dependence on God all the time and we must be doing life on His terms, not on our terms. See, this whole task of raising kids is impossible for us. There's actually only one entity in this universe that is qualified to raise the children that He creates. And that's the Creator. And that leaves us utterly, absolutely dependent. But God has given us a whole lot of very, very valuable instruction on how to go about it as we depend on Him entirely. I believe uh, very strongly that that the whole point here, the reason that there's the reason that there is only one verse in Ephesians 6 and only one verse in Colossians 3 about parenting is because everything that Paul has been giving us in Ephesians is about God's grand scheme for raising children. See, we have a front row seat to God's child-rearing method. He gives us three chapters that tells us whose we are, what we have been given in Christ. He tells us over and over in every conceivable way, from every angle, that we are outrageously blessed now and forever in Christ. And then he says, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And then he tells us how to do it. And, and what we are called to do, fathers, is to raise our kids the way God is raising His kid. And so we got all kinds of things to be to be looking hard at and to be praying about and to be putting into practice. That's just a summary of the command. Our whole life is God's classroom to conform us to Christ. And then He, and then he hands us this, this crazy, wonderful stewardship to be His instruments to do that in the lives of our kids until it's time for him to be directly their head or for the husband or the daughter to be the head. Now there's, there's some things that, that need to be obvious to us and maybe they need a little development. One is raise your children in the 
discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word, the word for discipline there is the very same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 when he says to his protege Timothy at the end of Paul's life, he says to him, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And the word training there is this word. Training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So what he's saying, he's saying is, here he's saying, fathers, raise your children with God's curriculum. Use God's child-rearing program. Not yours. God has given us this amazing, amazing wealth and and then here's this is really amazing. If you go to Amazon, if you go online to Amazon today and you put in the words books on parenting, you know how many hits you'll get? Twenty thousand plus. Those are just the books that are available now. People have been writing books about this as long as mankind has existed. How to raise children is is an, is a huge issue for human beings. So, <laughs> you come to Ephesians 6 and there's one verse. 20,000 volumes, one verse. You know why? Again, because this is God's guidebook. This is how God raises His kids and this is how we raise our kids. So, we don't need 20,000 books. We need this book. And please understand, I'm not saying that none of those other books are useful. I've learned some really good stuff from some of those other books. But you know the ones that are really valuable? The ones that point back to this one. The ones that make us think harder about what God says about raising kids. So we've got the source right here. The unadulterated milk of the Word of the living God. It's amazing how many Christian parents go about the the grueling process of raising kids and they rarely pick up their Bible. Another thing about that word discipline, if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, God talks about His discipline. In fact, it's His fatherly discipline. Same word. And and what does He say? He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. Does that sound fun? He even goes so far as to say if you were without that painful discipline, you're not a child of God. And and then He tells us what that discipline does. He says all fathers discipline their their sons, but but the perfect Father, He disciplines us for good that we may share His holiness. He says all discipline for the moment is sorrowful, but in the end it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, the only way to get to holiness and righteousness in practice in your daily life is pain. How many of you have gone through, have had major have crossed major thresholds in your movement toward godliness through something that was comfortable. I guess it could happen, but it hadn't happened to me. We share in the sufferings of Christ that we may share in His glory. And the servant's not greater than the master, so that means we get to share in His sufferings until we die because He gave up His glory until He died. 
the Christian life is a life in the refiner's furnace. And dads and moms, if you spend your time trying to pull your child out of that refiner's furnace, you're getting in the way of God. There are many parents who think that their task is to make their kids' lives comfortable. If that's your goal, you're fighting an immovable object known as God. He's not going to let you have your way. God knows how to introduce necessary frustration and challenge into the life of every child of His. So have fun trying to intercept all that. It doesn't mean we throw our children to the wolves. God put His Spirit in us. He is always in us and with us. He is our, he is our enablement. He is our power. He is our encouragement. And, and when God then commissions us as dads and moms to act in His place, we're supposed to be alongside our kids in life. We're not supposed to throw them to the wolves. That means we have to put down the TV remote. We have to put down the things that are consuming our time and insulating us from our kids, and we have to be in their lives. How many of you ever seen Leave it to Beaver? You have to be old to, to answer that question in the affirmative. That's a really good example of how this works. Ward goes into his son's room when his son's had some agonizing problem and he just sits down and talks to him. Of course, he was wearing a suit at the time. Uh, <laughs> I don't think, that, think that's part of the assignment. My brother Nathan Dula said in our Wednesday discussion that sometimes uh, in the name of gentleness, what we are doing is hiding cowardice. And I've thought a lot about that. God commands us in our dealings with our children to speak the truth in love. And Nathan said what tends to go out the window is the truth part. And we call that gentleness and we call it sympathy. It's not how sympathy works. You know what the word sympathy means in the Bible? It means entering into the suffering and joy of others. It doesn't mean patting them on the back for denying that the promises of God are valid today. And the same is true in our dealings with our children. Paul doesn't use a lot of scenarios, so I won't either, but I'm going to give you a couple. Uh, before I get to scenarios, there, there are two other principles here I want to mention. One is God's version of childbearing in the book of Ephesians should tell us that, that raising our kids cannot be done in a relational vacuum. See, our, the way God raises us, it, it, the way He impacts us is not just in the context of our Bible study and prayer when it's just us and Him. He throws us into relationship with other fallen human beings. And He does not engineer out in any way the possibility that we'll have to deal with really challenging, messed up, difficult human beings. And there are many parents and Christian parents who make it, they make it their goal in the, in their child rearing to insulate their kids from difficult people. Do you want to raise a wimp? The way God builds strength of heart and faithfulness in the lives of His children is by putting them in the refiner's furnace. And one of the hottest parts of that furnace is our relationships with other fallen human beings. It gives us all kinds of opportunity to be as Christ in the world that we wouldn't have if we weren't in those relationships. We don't raise our kids in a relational safe space. And when they're crying out for one, 
we come alongside them and we, we, we make it very clear that we love them dearly. And we say to them, son, daughter, life is supposed to be tough. It's supposed to be a challenge. And God is at work in you to will, if it's a believing child, God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure in the way He accomplishes that is through the hard stuff much more than through the easy stuff. When, when our children are suffering a, a great wrong at the hands of another person, you know what we should be doing with that? We should lovingly take them aside and say to them, God just handed you a marvelous opportunity. Instead of saying, oh man, this is horrible. This is terrible. We've got to fix this. We should say, God just handed you a marvelous opportunity. He has made you, believing child, He has made you outrageously wealthy in Christ. Take them back to Ephesians 1-3. through Remind them whose they are and what they have been given in Christ and then, then point out to them that God just handed them the opportunity to be eternally useful. Do you think that kids don't want to be significant? We all want to be significant. What our kids need to know is what significance looks like on God's terms. And we're the ones who get to tell them. We're the ones who get to point them back to what God has said instead of letting them find significance in all manner of things that are going to burn when this earth is burned. Let's help our kids discover the reality of eternal significance through submission to and obedience to and love for Christ. A couple of, uh, a couple of scenarios. Let's say your son comes home from school and he talks to you about the uh, shameless, scandalous things that some of the other boys were talking about. Or, or maybe he comes home and you find out from someone else that he's the one who was talking about those things. What do you do? Well, you could sit down with them and take them to Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such word as is good for building up according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. You could take them to the next chapter in Ephesians where it says, put away from you all filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting, which are not fitting for the saints of God. But put on Christ. Walk as light because you have been made children of light. Sit down with your child and talk to him about the fact that God is handing him an opportunity to show Christ off in the world. Your kid wants significance. What if your, uh, what if your daughter comes home one day and she is absolutely heartbroken? because of the slanderous things that have been said about her by someone that she thought she could trust, said behind her back. Do you sit down and pat her on the back and tell her it's okay that she's devastated? You say, I understand, I sympathize, just stew on that for a while, we'll come back and talk later. Is that what God does with you? Does God ever say to you, oh, you know, today you don't have to be like Christ. Today, you know, today I'm going to let you indulge, I'm going to let you indulge anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and self-pity. You just have at that for a while and then in a day or two we'll talk again. Is, does it, God ever say that to you? Why do we say that to our kids? You know what God says? God says today is the day to obey. 
Today is the day, right now, to respond to the truth and the power of His Word by humbling ourselves to submit to it. And saying, God, You know way more about what's good for me than I can ever know apart from what You tell me. I don't know anything until You tell me. Anything that matters. Let's raise our kids with that challenge. And in that particular scenario, say again to that daughter, sweetheart, I know this is hard. Betrayal is is terribly hard. But you know what God did with the greatest betrayal that ever occurred on the face of this earth? He saved us through that betrayal. The greatest humiliation, the greatest violation of God's character was the was the nailing to a cross by the hands of godless men of the Lord of glory. And what God did with that is He saved us forever. Remind your daughter that that's what the, that God does eternally good things through very, very hurtful things. And then point out to her that God just handed her a marvelous opportunity to love as she has been loved by Christ and forgive as she has been forgiven by Christ. Why would we say anything that contradicts those marvelous truths when we're dealing with our children? All right. Uh, talk about just a couple of other things quickly. Unbelieving children. Uh, you know what the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is when it comes to God's requirement? There is none. God requires the same thing of every creature, of every human being. The problem with being an unbeliever is you can't do it. A believer can't do it either apart from utter dependence on God, but but the unbeliever has no place to start. And you know what? That is a marvelous instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit to draw somebody out of the darkness and into the light. So don't soft-pedal God's requirement with your unbelieving child. It doesn't mean that you nag him into the kingdom. It means that when you have opportunity to speak to that son or daughter about the things that he's struggling with or she's struggling with, you speak the truth in love, just like you would with your believing child. You say the same thing. I've said this a million times, but when Bob said years ago that evangelism is praising God in the presence of unbelievers, man, that sticks. Why do we change our conversation when we're with unbelievers? Why would we change our conversation when we're sitting with our unbelieving children? The whole point here is to do it with the love of Christ at the very ground of all of it. To love as we have been loved by Christ. And that means that we are forbearing. It means that when our children aren't getting it, even when they are believers, when they aren't getting it, we forbear with them. And we remind them that God has been amazingly forbearing toward us. And they can count on the fact that they have a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He loves to forgive. He loves loves to stay the course with those whom He has chosen and made His own. We need to tell our kids that too. Single parent families, most of which are run, they are headed by women, not all. But in single parent families with a woman at the head, the woman is handed this accountability. And, and let me just say that if you are in the body of Christ and you are in that, in that place, I believe that it's, it is 
more imperative for you than for many others that you are very plugged into the body of Christ and that you are connected with other women who are married and raising kids. And you seek their counsel and you you commiserate with them in the process of child rearing. Not to to share your hurts only, but to, to listen to what they have to say. The body of Christ is... Somebody, I won't mention the name, said it takes a village to raise a child. Guys, it takes a church. It takes the flock of God to raise our children. God intends for us to be plugged in, not not these little islands of child raising. That's not what He intends. All right. One one other thing here. Beware of exasperating other other children's parents. There, There are a lot of parents who get exasperated in the process of child raising, not because of the imperfection of their kids, because of the perfection of other kids' parents. We need to put a lid on the super confident declarations about how to deal with that kid problem and that kid problem when we are all just, we are all just utterly dependent on God. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. I could go on. Lastly, teaching godly discipline requires godly discipline. Dads especially, moms too, but dads, how are you going to raise your child in the Discipline and instruction of the Lord if your spiritual discipline is shot. We need to be meeting the Lord of the Word in the Word of the Lord daily. We need to be going to Him in in regular devoted prayer. We need to be submitting to what He reveals to us. We need to be proclaiming the gospel to the people around us and adorning that message with lives that are lived well for Christ. And the only way that we're ever going to do any of that is that utter dependence part. What do utterly dependent people do? They depend. And the greatest expression of our dependence on God is prayer. We parents need to be praying. All right, let's do that. Father, Father, this is, this is too big an assignment for us, and you knew that when you gave it to us. But you are our power and our enablement, and you are able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine according to the power that you have made to dwell within us, that person of the Holy Spirit who is our greatest gift during the time on this, that we have on this earth. Father, work in us before you work in our kids. Work in us as, Father, make our submission to You our greatest priority, not the submission of our kids to us. Make us love them as we have been loved by You in Christ Jesus. Make us so that we forgive readily as we have been forgiven by You in Christ. Make us servants of our children in the love of Jesus. We pray it in His precious name. Amen.